One, two, three. Hello to our listeners and members. You are about to hear the full uncut conversation from our episode, Sonali Kolhatkar, Rising Up for Social Justice with Yes Magazine. What drives an independent journalist and what does it take to survive independently without the cash or cachet of the commercial media establishment? While I have a few thoughts about that, so does today's guest, Sonali Kolhatkar. Originally from India and born and raised in Dubai, Kolhatkar pivoted from studying astrophysics to journalism somewhere in the early 2000s. Soon, she was the host of Uprising with Sonali, a drive-time show that debuted in 2003 on Pacifica radio station KPFK in Los Angeles. And then the host of Rising Up with Sonali, which became syndicated on radio and also on free speech TV. Having in this way become the host of the longest running drive time radio program in Southern California hosted by a woman of color. In 2023, Sonali made a move. She's joined forces with the solutions-focused Yes magazine and now serves as racial justice editor there and host of a new weekly Yes Presents, Rising Up with Sonali, that continues to air also on Free Speech TV and Pacifica Radio affiliates, among others. Sonali is also a senior correspondent for the Independent Media Institute's Economy for All project, and she co-directs the Afghan Women's Mission, of which she is one of the founders. Somewhere along the line, I don't know how, she had time to write a book, which came out in June of this year. It's called Rising Up, The Power of Narrative in Pursuing Racial Justice, just published by City Lights. She also sings, plays ukulele, makes art, and bakes. How does she do it? We're going to find out. Sonali Kolhatka, welcome to the program. I am so glad to see you, old friend. Thank you so much, Laura, for having me on. It's just a wonderful pleasure to be with you. I try to kind of center myself in these conversations by taking a moment at the very beginning just to kind of think about who's on my mind, in my heart right now. Uh, and I'll ask you, who, who's uppermost in your thoughts as we begin this conversation? Um, well, you and I are speaking in uh, mid-October, and it is a moment where the world's attention is on the people, the Palestinian people and, and Israelis. And I'm thinking about how do we center the complex humanity of people that we are told are totally different from one another? And that fits in so well with all of the things that I've been thinking about in writing this new book that I have, which is how do we tell stories that humanize us and prevent others from otherizing us, if you will, uh, and, 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 and use the stories as an armor um, to protect our dignity, to protect our human rights. And it's not easy and it's never reductive and it's never straightforward. But that's that's first and foremost on my mind. And that can be applied to to people everywhere, to, to people of color here in the United States, to indigenous people in every country in the world um, and to anywhere where there's human conflict. Well said. Narrative and the commitment to narrative comes across powerfully in all of your work and most notably in 
the book that you've just referred to, but it wasn't always your passion. And I was reminded in reading the book that you started out thinking you were going to be a physics, a physics um, major and studying astrophysics. Um, how come and what changed and, and what of the astrophysicists do you think you brought into your journalism? Well, I'm a big nerd. I've always been really, really interested in trying to understand how things work. And that's what drove my passion for physics when I was very young. Um, it was the one subject that came easy to me. And I, I and I was able to really dig into the logic behind it. And I think I bring that with me into journalism by applying that to sociological issues. You know, studying physics is amazing, but it doesn't tell us much about the world that we live in beyond the physical, right? Um, and so I wanted to understand as a journalist, not only what makes people tick, but what makes societies tick. And I would like to think I bring my science background into my journalism. And I think all journalists should, when we strive to understand how things work, how societies work, how societies function, understanding fact-checking and statistical differences and making sense of data, but also then translating them into, into, into ideas that we can understand. And so, yeah, the science background is an interesting one, but I do think in retrospect, it has helped tremendously. I wouldn't, you know, I don't know if I would have done it the same way if I had known I wanted to be a journalist as a child, but I'm glad it turned out this way because it, it helps. <laughs> you had a dad that was very political, right? I mean, did, did was he excited when you turned to journalism or maybe he wanted to have an astrophysicist daughter? My, my grandfather was um, was a member of the, actually a founding member of India's Communist Party Marxist. And unfortunately, before he passed, I had not yet discovered my love for politics. And, you know, we didn't really talk much about it, but I know he was proud of me. My father is an avowed capitalist, you know, became an architect in Dubai and but his is but also was always on the same um, wavelength as his father and as I am, which is that, you know, we as immigrants, as people who have always sort of struggled on the margins, struggled to be taken seriously by society, we understand what it means to tell our stories. I know my dad and my granddad, wherever he is, are both proud of me. Um, and, you know, it's something that I hope to pass down to my sons. <laughs> and we should mention there is a mom somewhere in the picture. <laughs> yes, my mother is incredible. She is also very, very proud of me and she's my best friend. And I take care of my parents, by the way, at the same time as I take care of my children uh, today. So I'm part of that sandwich generation. And, you know, there's so much that I learn about society just being in that position about how society supports people or doesn't. Well, it is fantastic talking with you. We have traveled these kind of parallel tracks for so many years. And I remember when you first came to my attention, really, with the Afghan women's mission um, and the work that you took on to bring the stories, again, that emphasis on narrative, bring the stories of Afghan women and children and families to American audiences when mostly... Americans knew very little of anything having to do with Afghanistan until 9-11, um, of course. Talk about that moment. And then I have to ask you, you've mentioned the Middle East in your beginning as we thought about when who's on our mind. Somewhere in our minds and hearts, there also has to be room for the people of Afghanistan who've just sustained tremendous damage from earthquakes once again. 
Absolutely. And I'm still working closely with the women uh, that I formed ties with over 20 years ago. It's a phenomenal feminist organization, Afghanistan's oldest feminist organization called RAWA, the Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan. And what that taught me, that experience of getting to know RAWA, the women of RAWA, seeing how the media here in the United States and across the West reduced Afghan women to these two-dimensional, blue-clad, faceless creatures, and then seeing the reality of who Afghan women were taught me such a huge lesson early in my career, right? It's so much easier to say, we're going to save Afghan women and bring these orientalist and imperialist notions and white savior notions to war when we're talking about helpless, supposedly helpless brown people on the other side of the planet. And what Rawa taught me was that, you know, people that we otherize, people that we reduce to two dimensions or just images on paper have agency, are fighting for their own rights, don't need our help in saving them as much as they need us to get out of their way or maybe take away the weapons that we have given their enemies. And I really learned to, I, I, I understood what solidarity really meant, which was providing a platform for people who've been oppressed, helping them tell their stories, getting out of the way when I needed to, but then, um, you know, being the translator that I needed to be for American taxpayers who it's my job as journalist to um, educate, illuminate, to help understand what our tax dollars are doing. And so Afghanistan and the women of Afghanistan taught me so much. They continue to teach me so much, which is that we cannot reduce people to a few words. We certainly cannot uh, when we're thinking about bombs targeting them or them being victims of poverty and poor infrastructure, we absolutely cannot think of them as having any less dignity than you or I do here in the United States. I remember when I think it was Laura Bush at the time gave her famous speech about why the U.S. needed to come to the rescue of Afghan women after 9-11, um, that it was the women of Rawa who said no, no. Um, imperialism is imperialism is imperialism. We've had enough colonial intervention. Um, what we need is support to make ourselves free. As U.S. forces finally left decades later, what was the position of Rawa? And what do you hear from those women today? You say you stayed in touch. Yeah, um, Rawa was always very clear that every outsider, unless they were coming unarmed to help, was not wanted in their country. That included the United States. It included the, the Soviet Union and Russia. It included Iran and Pakistan. And of course, that didn't earn them that many friends here on the U.S. left, because a lot of people on the U.S. left didn't understand that when Rawa was critical of the Taliban, they were not necessarily on the side of the United States war. We, we like our binaries in the United States. Exactly. So Rawa has been fighting against, fighting non-violently against the Taliban, against the homegrown fundamentalists armed by the United States. And when the longest war, as the U.S. war in Afghanistan became, the longest war in the U.S. history came to an ostensible close, Rawa was certainly happy to see one less fighting force in their nation, fomenting destruction. And today what Rawa really wants is again to not 
be forgotten. This is what they wanted before the Taliban um, entered Afghanistan. This is what they wanted before the September 11th attacks. It's what they wanted after, because once the news media kind of died down and the war settled into a steady state, the cameras went away again. And uh, it's what they want now. Don't forget the people of Afghanistan because they remain the victims of our taxpayer-funded destruction. And simply leaving doesn't erase it either. And so, yeah, I talked to them about how we can you know, continue to help fund their projects, their health and educational projects um, from U.S. Uh, donations here. And hopefully some of your audiences will remember Rawa and remember to donate to, to the incredible work that Rawa is doing because they take the lead. And this is something that I learned through my work with Afghan Women's Mission, to reject the traditional nonprofit approach of telling women and people in other parts of the world what we think they need, instead taking their lead, allowing them to set the agenda and giving them the freedom and the money to do what they need to do and trusting them that they know what's best for themselves. Now, there are some stories, and Afghanistan is one, that are much harder to cover as an independent journalist, meaning it's much harder to go there. It's more expensive. One has less protection than one might if one belonged to some big, well-endowed commercial media outlet. Um, and perhaps the reporting feels um, too dangerous for its worth, for its potential impact. Um I haven't gone to Afghanistan. I've been to lots of places, but it was one where I thought as an independent, I'm more likely to run into trouble than I am to do much good that I can't do from here. How do you think about that? Have you ever thought, oh, I'd rather go work for a network somewhere? I'd be able to do stories I can't as an independent? You know, there's so many opportunities and advantages to being in a corporate funded industry. And I'll list the few of them that there are, which is that you can have an army of producers. Um, you can have the resources that it takes to get things done, although that is changing. The downside is that you, you, you can't just adhere to the fundamental tenets of why journalism is important. You have to adhere to the corporate bottom line of the corporation that you are working for, because our the majority of commercial news media, by definition, are commercial and they are profit-seeking corporations. So the bottom line is the most important thing. So you could be covering the most crucial, undercovered stories but if you're not capturing eyeballs and delivering them to their advertisers you and not getting the ratings that, that their boss wants you to get, you stand in danger of being cut. And, that, and, and the other thing is also just towing the line, right? Being careful about not going against what the U.S. State Department's, Department wants you to say, um, especially on fraught issues like Israel and Palestine and even on racial justice issues saying the things that are unpopular can get you into a hell of a lot more trouble in a commercial space than it can in an in independent space. And the other thing is I'm probably too old for commercial media right now. I'm you 40. and me both. Right. Uh, we are past we, we are past the age where women are supposed to be on camera. We are past the age where, you know, we, we you know, I don't cover my gray hair and my wrinkles. And so therefore, I'm it's you know, it, it, there's a few women who break through the glass ceiling. But there's so many reasons why. And of course, my name is hard to pronounce. I have a bit I have a weird accent that people can't quite place for all of these reasons. I can't be I, I'm not I'm not able to be boxed in. What strikes me more than 
anything, Sonali, and why I relish the freedom that I do is that we get to choose which stories are important. And for all the good individuals who try to do their best inside corporate media, you only have to watch particularly television news these days to see that a very limited number of stories are um, covered. And they're covered over and over again by different reporters sometimes, often not, same reporter on the same show over and over. But what you don't see is any different selection of topic. Um, And I think that's the freedom that I most appreciate, that we can ask different questions, pursue different stories, and really bring different perspectives to the news and redefine what the news is in a way that's exciting to me. Now, you are launching, have just launched a new show that is a great example of that. You're not following the what bleeds leads. You're actually following what's possible leads, um, where the future might come from, those kinds of leads that we follow here on this show. Tell us a little bit about Yes Presents and what you hope to do there that you haven't done uh, before. You know, there is a, you're right, there's such a narrow spectrum of topics that the commercial media covers. But I have to say, unfortunately, even in progressive media, we tend to sometimes fall into that trap following the headlines. And for so many years, I covered breaking news and it was debilitating mentally. Uh, It was, you know, it, it fuels cynicism when we see all of the things that are wrong with the world. And in a way, we're sort of taking our lead from the commercial media because that's where the eyeballs are. But what I have really pivoted toward in this stage of my career, in large part, thanks to Yes Magazine and Yes Media, is this idea that wherever there are things that are wrong with the world, there are people that are working to fix them, no matter what, just because that's the human spirit. To sound a little, you know, cliche, but there are people working on grassroots levels to fix problems in different ways. They're doing them with varying degrees of success. That's where the exciting front of organizing and change is happening. And that's often where media simply don't cover what's going on. And then when something amazing happens, we're caught off guard. So that's where I'm focusing in now. And I know, Laura, you and I are part of the, you know, you've been doing it a lot longer than I have. I consider you a mentor and someone who, you know, whose who's lead I've followed and a role model for doing this kind of journalism. It's not just a lot more positive for me feeling hopeful about the world, but I think for my audiences, because solutions journalism can fuel uh, a, a hope that and, and, and a promise that if there are people here doing this about their problems, I can do the same. If the, if the world is not doomed, then I am going to get off my backside and do something about it. And we all need a lot more of that. So I'm excited. Yes Presents Rising Up with Sonali is going to be focusing on the stories where change is happening, on how labor organizing is happening, on how racial justice is happening, the reparations movement, the police abolition movement, what defund the police really means, uh, where it's actually taking place, not the places that, that we think it's taking place, but where it's happening in beautiful ways, where we're closing down jails, where we're ending you know, mass incarceration. And and it's very exciting. And I hope it puts, I hope it it's lights the spark in other journalists to do the same. Let's play the trailer. Here's the trailer introducing Yes Presents, Rising Up with Sonali, announcing this new partnership with Yes Magazine. 
Yes presents Rising Up with Sonali, your weekly antidote to the doom and gloom of mainstream news, lifting up solutions that bring us closer to economic, racial, gender, and environmental justice. We'll explore how grassroots communities in the U.S. and beyond are reshaping our world for the better, whether it's reimagining public safety, promoting sustainable projects to make fossil fuels obsolete, building a fair economy, or pushing a diversifying nation to live up to its democratic ideals. We'll explore the front lines of justice-driven work, abolition, reparations, land back, abortion access, trans rights, labor organizing, and so much more. Sonali, I have to ask you first, congratulations. This is, this is like two best friends coming together. Yes, Magazine and you. I, I couldn't be happier. Is there a story that stands out that you've already covered or that you've got in the works to cover that you particularly want to bring to, to this audience? Oh, there's so many stories, but um, the favorite, one of my favorites that I worked on for a recent issue of Yes Magazine called Growth was the idea of the growing pains of our democracy. So many of us in the country today are trying to make sense of why white supremacy is resurging, are trying to make sense of why we're seeing the attacks on transgender people, on people of color, on voting rights, on, you know, books, on critical race theory. And so I wrote this uh, piece, a reported story for Yes's Growth Issue, where we look at the fact that the demographics of our nation are changing, you know, faster than we even expected in a way that is fueling this great roiling happening in the nation. And white conservatives in particular are terrified of the prospect of being minorities, right? Those of us who have been minorities in this country are responding by saying there's nothing to fear. If anything, we need to weave ourselves together into the promise of a multiracial democracy, one that we have on paper but have never actually realized. And so addressing this resurgence of white supremacy seeing the violence in this broad and and the and the and the you know sort of creeping fascism in a broad based framework uh, I think really helps. And so th th seeing th what we're experiencing now as this uncomfortable, ugly growing pain that we need to address, that we need to meet head on and move past. So this was one of my favorite stories. And I spoke with people like Steve Phillips, who's long looked at demographic change. Um, I covered the Tennessee Three, uh, you know, these young people of color who are entering office and who are, you know, being silenced, but are nonetheless continuing to rise and speak up. And it's part of what I also write in my new book, Rising Up, um, and these narratives that we absolutely need to start embracing. So yeah, this was one of my favorite stories. I well, hope let me ask like you about that. In the wake of the killing of George George Floyd, um, there were a lot of commitments made by media and banks and all sorts of institutions that they were going to do better and more. And, and we don't know everything that they may have tried, but one of the visible things seems to be a lot of people of color or some people of color brought into media, brought into institutions. And I think there's a difference between that and the sort of narrative shift that you're talking about. Can you talk about it? I mean, some of those new appointments are successful, but some of them smack a lot of kind of bean counting and ass covering to me. 
Absolutely. You know, when we talk about DEI initiatives, the D and the I part of DEI are fairly toothless. We've been doing it for a long time. Diversity, equity, inclusion. Diversity, I mean, you know, since the 1980s Benetton ads, we've had diversity, right? The Supreme US Supreme Court, even before Ketanji Brown-Jackson was on, could have been considered an inclusive body because we had one black justice on there. But the E part of DEI, which is where the meat of our desire for racial justice lies, which is equity, that's where we need to center the storytelling that we need to do. And so in the book, I talk about how we are our stories. Storytelling and intentional storytelling in particular, which is what narrative is, shapes our culture, shapes our views of everything, shapes our views of each other, our, of government, of what we expect from one another. And when we tell our stories, it's so much harder to dehumanize us and to objectify us. And, you know, the mass narrative setting industries, such as Hollywood, pop culture, our news media, have been rife with racist narratives seeking to stereotype in particular people of color. That's changing dramatically. Um, Hollywood is changing in part because people of color have been clawing their way into the writers' rooms and the executive suites, demanding to be heard. Black Twitter is, you know, pushing Hollywood with the hashtag Oscar so white. Um, and of course, what happened in the streets on tw in 2020 pushed a lot of institutions shamed them really into realizing that they need to do so much better on allowing people of color to tell our own stories simply by being present, by shaping the narratives. And that is a critical part of it. We can't just have policy changing without culture shifting because it doesn't stick. We need mass buy-in from the whole nation, or at least the majority of the nation, that people of color deserve to be here, deserve to be part of this democracy. If we just do narrative shifting and no policy shifting, then it's just PR, right? So we need both. But the narrative part is where I think uh, progressives need to do better and, you know, are now paying more attention to. And so it's an exciting sort of new field in a new new front in organizing, racial justice organizing, that I've just really enjoyed talking about and writing about. Because as a journalist, what I do is narrative work. So <laughs> You also watch a certain amount of TV and movies, to, to judge by your book. Um, is there a favorite? You, you have a lot of critique of Hollywood, and I join with you in that. Um, there's also change that you allude to and you just mentioned. Is there a favorite show, a favorite innovation? I have to say, I think of um, Reservoir Dogs. I mean, I think of Reservation Dogs as a great innovation, something that has brought reservation life, indigenous life, Native American reality um, to big audiences across this country. And I wonder whether it's changing people's sense of indigenous cultures as alive and well right now. Absolutely. Uh, Reservation Dogs is so phenomenal. I mean, it's so groundbreaking because it's not only putting indigenous people on screen, it's putting a you know the majority of people, if not almost all people on the screen are indigenous, but the writers are indigenous. The showrunners are indigenous. Um, you know, Dallas Goldtooth, who I'm sure you've spoken to and I've had on my show, someone who is, you know, ubiquitous in progressive organizing, but also comedy and stand up, is one of the writers on the show and has shaped that show. And 
for that to be greenlit is incredible. But I mean, it's, it's you know, there's shows that came before that, shows like Blackish, shows like Fresh Off the Boat. They're not necessarily radical. I mean, even if you look at what Shonda Rhimes did with Bridgerton, putting people of color in places that you wouldn't expect, uh, Disney having a black Little Mermaid, these may even, even the ones that don't seem radical 10 or 20 years ago, it would have been unheard of to think of people of color in these lead roles because our mere presence is a form of narrative. It's saying we deserve to be here. Now, I would like to see us go much beyond our mere presence and, and of course, go beyond the stereotypes because people of color have been on screen, you know, as narco traffickers and gang members and the maids and the help. But we want much more than that. We don't just want agency and lead roles. We want complex characters. We want fallible characters. characters well, we want narrative. You want narrative, as you described exactly. so clearly in the book. And I'd love you to elaborate just a little bit more on that, how narrative the story telling itself and the defining and choosing of which stories to tell can advance social justice. How? Absolutely. It is so critical for us to think about, for example, how we portray police on screen, how we portray guns on screen. Um, I have a whole chapter in the book on copaganda, which may not on its surface may uh, seem like something around racial justice, but policing and how much money societies put into our police departments, cities put into our police department, coming at the expense of social services is where the nuts and bolts of racial justice lie. And Hollywood over and over again, inadvertently perhaps, justifies bloated police budgets by normalizing policing on screen, by equating policing with safety, by showing police characters, especially in scripted crime TV shows, which is the most popular genre of scripted shows, by showing police as noble do-gooders and who constantly break the law, but they always do it for good reason. And they get the audiences cheering on cops. Those of us who are people of color, especially Black Americans who see the reality, you know, have a different experience with police. But if it's only white people writing the stories, they're going to write what they know. And if white people have very positive experiences with police in real life, they're going to put that in the scripts. They're going to put that on our screens. And then when it comes time to talking about moving funding away from policing and toward the things that actually matter, um, Hollywood is there cheering on policing. And that, for me, is really critical. We have to call out Hollywood because even liberal Hollywood does it. I call out Damon Lindelof, who did Watchmen, this you know supposedly forward-thinking show that centered on the Tulsa race massacre, but that is super pro-police, equating people of color with cops, you know, masked um, superheroes who are also cops and who are equally fighting side by side against white supremacists, when in reality, we know that there's a lot more overlap between white supremacists and police. So we have to call that out, you know, and I try to do that in my book. So coming back to the news, I know that I feel a push-pull every election year, and we're about to go into another one. It seems like one just runs into the other. As I think about how to cover another election with a guy who, let's face it, benefited enormously from his media coverage and his media presence for all those years. Um, it's a challenge to remain current, to remain engaged with an audience that's hearing all about an election, 
but to be inserting different content into the conversation. How are you thinking about it? Or, or are you blissfully in denial for at least a little bit longer? Oh, no, <laughs> I'm not in denial. And I'm not one of these people who thought that if we just pretend Trump doesn't exist, he'll go away. There were so many of us on the left who were like, let's not give him oxygen. Let's not talk about him. Like, he's not going away. We need to mention who he is and we need to uh, identify him, right? Because in 2015, the corporate media failed to identify him as racist. It took him, them two years into his tenure and lots of hand-wringing and internal discussions to say, oh, we're now going to decide to call him racist. Um, and so I think I'd like to approach the next election in the same way, using the terms that are objectively descriptive of him. Racist, fascist, white supremacist, not shying away from that, applying those terms to the party that champions him, saying it in a matter of fact way without feeling the need to constantly justify it. Because if anybody were to dig beneath the surface or scratch beneath the surface, those, those labels are absolutely applicable. And then of course, being very careful to not let Democrats off the hook and understanding that elections are a, a, a game of trying to stave off <laughs> harm right it's like it's keeping keeping the front lines of of um keep keeping fascism at bay that was what the 2020 2016 election really was about although many of us didn't know it and it certainly was what the 2020 election was about uh but keeping fascism at bay absolutely has to be at the center of the 2024 election and i'll have i'll be covering it in that way i didn't hear you use the word indicted but that's another accurate description of absolutely the guy. <laughs> so all of that brings me back to where we began which is the people in our hearts and on our minds um, as wars rage in so much of our world, um, but particularly in respect to the Israel-Hamas war at this time. Are you seeing any change that cheers you in the coverage? You know, it used to be that when such things happen, and of course, what we saw in, in Israel was quite unprecedented. It was really, you know, we hadn't seen the level of, of massacres of Israelis um, as we've just seen. Uh, but in the past, there's been some, you know, similar formula. Uh, Hamas will go in and do an attack. Israel will respond with relentless and far more disproportionate force. And, and the, all the cheerleaders for Israel will come out. Um, we're seeing little hesitation now. Uh, we're seeing, for example, the Harvard University campus is roiled in this debate because Harvard University didn't come right out in favor of backing Israel unconditionally. Pro-Palestinian voices have been doing a lot of narrative work over the past 10, 20 years. Well, they've been doing it for a lot longer, but because of maybe social media and digital media and the space that they're getting, um, we're seeing the narrative shifting around Palestinian voices and what it really means to resist and what it means when you push a people so far that you ignore their oppression till Till, till there's massacres and deaths. Um, and the dehumanization of Palestinians is, is really heartbreaking. It's one thing to, to criticize what Hamas is doing. It's another thing to be silent about what governments are doing, right? Governments are not governments like the United States and the government of Israel, uh, of Israel and the governments of European nations, what they're sanctioning. Um, it's a very, very different thing than what a militant organization is sanctioning. And so we have to call out our governments over and over again for not reducing people to the state of animals. I mean, they're literally talking about Palestinians as animals. The Israeli defense um, minister. Yeah. 
I will with I will join with you in saying I think there is a tenor shift. Um, not in at the leadership level, but at the public level and at the level of media, I am seeing more Israeli voices brought into our conversation and a few more Palestinian ones and some acknowledgement that journalists are having a very hard time getting reports out of Gaza under siege. So I will say it's we're not there and we can't there's nothing to celebrate in this moment. But quite possibly there's been a bit of a shift. And I also am struck by the fact that I think US audiences are holding this news as they also hold the news from Ukraine, they hold the news from Afghanistan, and they are even possibly some of them watching the wildfires in um, in Argentina. There's so much on our minds at every moment. On some days, I think it's overwhelming. On other days, I think it's an invitation to break open and shift. Um, how do you deal with those days where it feels overwhelming? Or is that when you pick up the ukulele? Well, yes, partly. Um, I, you know, you and I are journalists. It's our job to monitor everything that's happening everywhere we possibly can. But we are living in a in a moment uh, in in time when we have so much information at our fingertips, and frankly, humans weren't really built to like handle knowing everything that's happening all over the world, maybe the far reaches of our tribe or village, but and maybe the edges of, you know, the next region. Um, but we have so much information. And for from audiences, if you're not a journalist, first of all, take a break from the news. Don't get overwhelmed. Think about what you can control that matters to you in your community and focus on that joyfully. Take the time to spend your days as much as you have free time and disposable time with the people that you love and talk to them, even the ones you disagree with, talk to them about the differences that you might have in a loving way. Don't call each other out in nasty ways, even if you deeply disagree. And it's something I also talk about in my book. How do we do narrative shifting person to person? Because we have to be, we have to rally around this ideal that we as human beings deserve equal rights, no matter how we how different we think we might be. And we cannot fall for the things that politicians tell us. And there's so much work to be done to undo the brainwashing of right-wing news media in particular. So many of our friends and neighbors in our local communities have bought into the garbage around dehumanizing transgender people in particular, Black people and, and so many others, immigrants, undocumented immigrants. So that's what I would say. Try to think about those things that you can control. And maybe you are a Palestinian American who has family um, or an Afghan American who has family in a war zone. Hold them in your thoughts too and make sure your local journalists and your local politicians are doing the right thing by those people that you love dear in terms of coverage, in terms of policy, you know, and, and focus your efforts because we can't do it all. If we try, we're going to fail. We're going to burn out and we're going to check out. And we can't have that. We can do it. We can hold Israelis, Jews, Palestinians, and those in Gaza in diaspora as well in our hearts at the same time. I believe it. Um, we just need to exercise those muscles. Well, Sonali, thank you so much. And I'm going to encourage people to check out the new show. They can find it through the website for Yes Magazine, Yes Presents, Rising Up with Sonali, and to check out your new book. It's been wonderful talking with you. Thank you so much, Laura. 